the most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. What do you do? That's a question that Prince Charles asks uh, of a day when he's out and about. Um, if you answer it, I doubt you would have the same sort of job description at the moment that a cat by the name of Imtiaz Shams has. He was brought up in Saudi Arabia and then in London, and he actually said London, where he was living, um, was more strictly Islamic in his community than it was in Saudi Arabia. He decided, no, I don't believe in this anymore and caught hell. And he thought he was the only one. He's one of the brave sorts that helps others and has created online networks and physical, actual help. It's called the Underground Railway for those that do want to leave Islam. And it's not just as it says, you know, you can be killed for apostasy. You get shunned by your family. You have a real, real hard time. He helps those people. He'll be on between 10 o'clock and 11. Also, we're going to have a look at the Plain English Awards. Um, there is such a thing. It's fascinating, and it's a New Zealand thing. Keep tuned for that. Skeptical Thoughts time, though, with Susie Wiles. Bullshit. All right. Susie, welcome along. Hello. All right. Uh, first up, let's hit, shall we hit Monsanto? Let's hit Monsanto. Oh, boy. Monsanto chemicals cancer. Evil. It's a perfect <laughs> storm for just outrage. <laughs> Moo, Monsanto. Evil, evil, evil. <laughs> All right. Um Tell us what they're doing, or do you want to hear the audio? Let's <coughs> play the audio. Okay, here mm. we go. Um, this is, I think, pretty much self-descriptive. He'd alleged that Monsanto's glyphosate-based weed killers, including Roundup, caused his illness after using the product up to 30 times a year. I'm glad to be here to help with this situation. After I learned about Roundup and, 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 and glyphosate and everything, I'm glad to be here to be able to help with a cause that's way bigger than me. So hopefully this thing will start to get the attention that it needs to get right so folks can make a good choice. Monsanto now faces more than 5,000 similar lawsuits across the United States. Chemical giant Monsanto has been ordered to pay $289 million to a man who says their weed killers caused his cancer. Cancer. Yeah, so... Exactly what it says on the tin. Monsanto, a, a jury in California have basically found that Monsanto failed to warn customers of the danger of their products and uh, have awarded this gentleman $289 million in damages for his cancer. Mm -hmm. And as the news thing said, he's the first of 5,000, it would seem, that are now going to start bringing these cases against Monsanto. Mm. And it's really interesting. So it's... Um, you know, on my Facebook feed, I've got friends who've started to go, yes, fantastic, finally, people are listening to this thing. Um, but there's a huge amount of evidence that actually it does not cause cancer. The main ingredient, glyphosate, which is the thing that everybody's worried about, uh, there's there's just humongous numbers of studies that show that it's not dangerous. It's the really word Monsanto almost causes cancer in the public... <laughs> 
eye, yeah, doesn't it? Does, it? Yeah. And the public it's eye really, is a, ju- is a jury. Yes. Right. That's kind of all you need, really. Yeah. So um, the so what is glyphosate? It's basically a modified version of glycine, which is one of our essential amino acids. Um, and in plants and animals, it binds to um, uh, kind of important enzymes that they need to, to synthesize certain types of amino acids. And so they that that's why it's such a fantastic weed killer, because in plants, if they can't do that job, then they die. The important thing is that humans and animals, we don't have that same um, that same relationship. They don't have an enzyme that's blocked by glyphosate, so it doesn't doesn't do the same thing to us. And as I say, there's been studies upon studies. The thing that I guess meant that this happened is a few years ago, the International Agency of Research for Research on Cancer concluded that glyphosate was probably carcinogenic. They put it in the category two A. Um, class and so that has sort of opened the doors for everybody going ah well then it must cause cancer and it's kind of interesting so I was reading through what else is in the same category so you want to take a guess of some of the things that are in the same category 2A mm. coffee <laughs> yeah so making glass pickled vegetables very hot drinks working as a hairdresser these are all things that are also in category 2A as potentially carcinogenic um, although the review, the this the um, the write up about that from this sort of groups concluded that there was very limited evidence for it to be true in humans, and actually the WHO, the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the European Food Safety Authority, and the German Federal Institute for Risk Assessment have all looked at the evidence and said there's no reason to think that glyphosate would be dangerous to humans in the amount that's found in our food or that's used kind of by people who are doing these things. And in fact, a study um, just published last year followed 54,000 agricultural workers over 20 years and found that glyphosate was not associated with cancer in those people. 54,000 over 20 years. Roundup's been around a long time too, hasn't it? Yeah. And and the thing is, glyphosate's an ingredient used lots of other things, but somehow Monsanto's the one... It's just, it's kind of fascinating because Monsanto have done some really, really evil shit, right? And th- and it's just this association that if, if they, they've obviously got to be lying and stuff, but it's really interesting because the evidence doesn't show that. Mm. Which reminds me, I meant to bring something and wave at you, a book that I completely forgot to bring. Um, Jess Berritson Shaw has just published a book with BWB Techs about basically how, uh, I can't remember what it's called. Um, it's kind of like, the truth in a post-truth world or something. Oh, yeah. Uh, you've got to talk to her. I mean, this is all about how, and you know, there's just, how do you get information out there when we're surrounded by misinformation? Really interesting. Um, yeah, it was just out on Friday, so. It was interesting. Um, we're just talking with Talon Monk with uh, Mediastick. Um, there is more fake news, but for my thinking was, in order for us to recognise anything or even give it a name as fake news, Someone must have figured out that it's fake. Mm. And we are finding more and more stuff that is fake. Mm. Is this actually a good thing in the past? We'd never find out if stuff was fake. Now we can look all over the place and find out it is. Yeah, but I think the problem is that that most people don't find out it's fake. Or there's a thing that, oh, uh, that it's that it's the label given to given to things people want you to think is fake. I don't right, know. I, no, think it's, yeah. I think it's more complicated than that, right? It's more confused, yes. at, at the very least, yes. shall we say. Yes. Anyway, okay. this, I think is now another one, that, that, at, that now, regardless of all the evidence to the contrary, 
that is the thing that people are going to remember, that Monsanto have had to pay millions of dollars in damages because their products cause cancer. Yeah. And it's not true. Okay. They're fighting it, though. <sighs> yeah, but they've lost. They've. Act- I mean, in reality, they have lost. Because even if they win an appeal, it is still going to be in people's minds that, that, that yeah. this was the ruling. All right. Now, here's um, a little piece from one of these murder podcasts that are proving to be quite popular. So 22 years ago, um, John Reynolds um, went to his work at a scrap metal yard. His wife was expecting him home in about midday. They were going to go out and buy a washing machine. He didn't arrive home, so his wife contacted his brother, Michael, who subsequently went down to the yard and found John deceased inside the building. He'd been the victim of a vicious attack, and as a result, the police were called. Yeah, so this is actually really interesting. There's um, so this is a, one of the uh, stuff teams um, podcast, heavy metal um, about this murder. And so, uh, what's his name? Martin Van Bayen, um, a journalist, has been working for several months with another reporter, Blair Enser, and um, they've been looking into this cold case. So um, that this death and that happened in April 1996. And, and I've just read a really great piece by him because. <coughs> Sorry, <coughs> it turns out that this uh, really recently was one of the murders that was covered by the sensing murder psychics. Oh, how did they do? <laughs> Not very well. It wouldn't be here. So Martin's written a piece just go, just, <laughs> just really kind of like, ah, there's so much stuff they got wrong. So many details got they got wrong, including position of the body. Apparently the, the show um, made a really big deal of a story that um, the, the victim was supposed to have told a friend about some bullet wounds he had in his uh, midriff um, that he apparently was a uh, this was to do with his um, underworld past back when he lived in the UK and these journalists looked into it and it was complete bollocks apparently he'd had a shooting accident in Australia um, so there's a whole heap of stuff and that's just the, there's, there's many more examples where um, if anybody had done any actual research like these journalists have done, they would have found it was all bullshit. And he's really disappointed, I think, that, you know, and actually what he said was that they would have loved to have found, you know, as journalists would have loved to have found, like, the killer um, and or, or the evidence that was needed to convict someone. And they said that actually the police have a fairly good idea who did it, but there's just, there is no evidence or not enough evidence right. evidence to convict. You don't need to bring the psychics in. <laughs> and he kind of ends his piece by, you know, going um, that, you know, basically new ages, deluded new ages and no psychic has ever solved a crime. And that is true. <laughs> what worries me, I'm going to give a little analogy that happened in real life. What worries me about these psychics most, um, aside from them... Um, preying on people's grief and emotions, mm. is when I was a kid, I had something I called the ghost hut underneath the house. And I used to scare people um, and have strings and they would go all over different places and I could make things rattle and move <laughs> far away and and have things come out of places and, and scare the bejesus out of kids. And it was great fun. And... It was kind of an overcast day one day and there was this a ray of light would come in underneath the house from outside. And I said, and now I call upon the... And I shall make the sun dim. And a cloud went over just then and everything dimmed right down dark. 
so scared with these people. They just ran and I met Tracy many, many years later. I really think I <laughs> may have set damage. her. I did some damage, <laughs> sent her on the path to woo, oh, no. that she believed it. They are going to have a cloud going past, past the sun just when I said it was going to moment. Out of dumb luck, they're going to get <laughs> one right. Yes. And they will use that as proof that yeah. all of it's right. Yeah. And it's just really sad. Anyway, this, I, just love, I just love the fact that the journalists are really annoyed because they did all the hard work. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So all go right. and listen to their podcast rather than watch Sing Sing Murder, I'd say. Good one. All right. Uh, 24 after 9 o'clock, short break. We'll be back with more from Susie Wiles shortly. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Okay. Uh, Skeptical Thoughts with Susie Wiles. Um, now, there was a Sunday program on, this is Television One, an investigation mm. into gay conversion therapy in New Zealand. Uh, we have some of the uh, testimony or at least claims uh, from uh, gay therapy. This is just from that program. Your attraction um, can absolutely be changed. A sexual relationship between one man and another man isn't part of God's plan. Coming before God and just asking him to heal me from this disease. No one is born that way. And so if that's the case, it must be possible to change. Conversion therapy, spiritual healing, praying the gay away. Alcoholics change, uh, thieves change, all sorts of people change. This is undercover footage of therapy that has many different names. We need to rewire your brain. And it is completely doable. No matter what you call it, the end goal is always the same, to change or suppress someone's homosexuality. It's the underlying thing that anything's possible for God. So if we're struggling with same-sex attraction, then um, God can fix that. All right. Oh, honestly, this this is just a fantastic piece uh, on Sunday. Um, head on over to their Facebook page and see if you can find it. They've got the whole clip up there. It's like 20-odd minutes long. Really, really interesting. Um, they've got a, um, some people who've, you know, <laughs> uh, either grew up Christian or, you know, were um, very, very religious, had not, been, had not found a church that accepted them for who they were, um, and so have spent years and years kind of suppressing their sexuality, you know, thinking that they were an abomination and all these kinds of things um, and and heard uh, some of whom had got, undergone this, uh, you know, conversion therapy. Uh, and then they've gone undercover and, and filmed some of the claims that people have made. And it's just, it's just shocking. It's just awful. You know, the, 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 the I mean, a lot of the stuff is based on, um, you know, your, your, uh, homosexuality is a sin and it's the result of people being sexually abused or suffering some kind of trauma and mm. so you just have to deal with that and then you know then you're basically heterosexual and it's just it's just so wrong awful. television programs as a oh, child god it's not enough meat not enough <laughs> meat or outdoor fresh air and exercise that that'll fix it it's terrible and the other thing is that anybody in new zealand can basically call themselves a therapist so you can essentially set yourself up as a therapist doing really? this kind of stuff yeah mm. um whereas the actual 
therapists yeah. <laughs> uh, who sign up to a code of ethics and things. You know, this is just not this is unethical and so not the sort of thing that they would do. But it's um yeah, a really really good piece. Well done to the team um, for pulling it together and just the people who've been affected by it. Mm. God, it's awful. I would yeah. hope that they um instead of trying to struggle with a religion. They could give it away. Yes. Um, but but if people very... do believe, and and the, at least the Anglicans, uh, m- most of them don't mind because they don't believe in, the, in God <laughs> anyway, do they? Progressive Jews don't care at all because they're practically atheists. The less you believe in this stuff, the better off you are, I've found. But, you know, so like one of the guys who was interviewed, I mean, his, you know, his whole identity was around being Christian and, and being involved in the church and all mm. of this kind of stuff. And then when you can't, you know, when it when that when that when that church that particular church is telling you that you're well, not telling you in particular because you're suppre- you know, you're not you're not out to anybody, but saying all the stuff about the things that you know in yourself is how you are. Hate the same I mean, love that would just sinner. be awful. And yeah. ah anyway, great piece. Well done. Yeah. And it's not just the Old Testament either, if you're thinking that. Um, there's just look at what Paul wrote about the abominations and Pauling. Corinth, I think it was, and things like that. Anyway. Susie Wiles, thank you very much. It's a public service. <laughs> Next up, uh, it's a hard listen, but it's I think a worthy one. Um, what parasi- human parasites, and I was so surprised to find out how devastating they are, not just to people, uh, but communities, in fact, nations. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless, on Radio Live. This is going to be an icky subject we shan't blanch from, because it's Damned interesting as well, and that is the world of parasites, particularly human parasites. I'm just wanting to put up some things online, but I kind of recoil. You can you can see a human bot fly online. It's gruesome. I didn't really know whether to put it up online on the Weekend Friday Wireless webpage thing, but other people aren't as squeamish as I, so I'm going to do that anyway. <laughs> Professor Graham Legros from the Maligan Institute for Medical Research. We're talking human parasites. We've evolved alongside the natural world for all time. Are there parasites, Graham, that are endemic to just us, Homo sapiens? Yes, there are. There's some exquisitely evolved parasites that can only survive within us. And in fact, there's one just about to go extinct because we found a way to get rid of them. It's called the guinea worm. And it's an awful parasite. You ingest it, and then it finds a way to get into the tissues of your body, and then it grows down through your legs. And then it makes the bottoms of your legs intensely itchy, so itchy you want to scratch and you want to put it in water. And apparently that's the bottom of the worm and it just releases eggs. And then the whole cycle, when you drink that water, repeats again. And they've found a way to cure people of it or to eliminate it. It's just to put a filter in drinking straws and I think it's gone. It's extinct because there's no way of preserving these worms. They die if you try and freeze them. Yeah, I'm the, sorry. These things are hard to love. I doubt there's a parasite <laughs> preservation society, but maybe there is. Well, there is actually. If you go online, I think there's Save the Guinea Worm campaign where the people based in America will actually go and see if, who wants to be a human host for this thing. But you can count me out on this one. How awful is it to have a guinea worm infection? Uh, I think it's 
pretty intense. Apparently, you just go nuts because it, it exploits often these worms that, that they exploit us and change our behaviour, make an immune response that makes it so intense and itchy. It's just worse than the most worst bee sting, and, uh, and until you do something about it and scratch the ed- the surface of the skin so the eggs are released. So how do the eggs get to the surface of your skin and make oh, you itch? The worm just migrates through the body and grows and grows, and it just starts... In the bloodstream? No, no, through the tissue. Through oh, the tissue. God. Uh, they think that actually this is how witch doctors got going, you know, many hundreds of thousands of years ago, or thousands of years ago, because you can just slowly over a period of three days pull the worm out of the body, and no. it can be up to a metre long. No! Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, you asked for it. <laughs> and of course, if you imagine to people in the village, they see this person pulling this long thread-like thing out of the body. They think it's magic, wouldn't they? And then the itching stops. <laughs> you no, know, a meter. A meter. And it's in the muscle tissue and yes, in your fibrous yes, tissue, yes, and yes. it can just be in your up, gut. Just look up guinea worm and, and and be prepared to be revolted. Okay. Yeah, there we go, folks. Um, enter at your own peril. Very hard to love, a guinea worm. I've heard stories about pubic lice. We've got endemic ones of them. Yes, pubic lice are also highly evolved. There's two forms. The pubic ones, which people sort of worry a bit about, us and gorillas are the only ones sort of with them. And they are sort of, if you look at pubic versus the other kinds of lice that live in us, they've got a size that relates to how far apart the hairs are on our pubic region as compared to the other parts of our body. And we think that, um, well, not we, but the people who have done genetics on the lice figure out that the gorilla and the human pubic lice separated about 3.3 million years ago. We were once far hairier before we got savannah-like. Did they get kind of like stranded in your groin when Um, we lost a lot of hair? No, no, I don't think so. I think um, they, they came from the much hairier gorilla is what the saying goes, actually. Oh, okay. So three million years ago, yeah. our common ancestor, then something happened. Yes, exactly. I, I think there might have been something, yes, someone getting it on together. All right. <laughs> um, so what's the status of pubic lice today? How are they doing? I think if you've got normal attention, good eyesight and all the rest of it, and you're pretty much aware of them, there's some pretty easy topical things to get rid of them. They're not a hard thing to get rid of. Uh, One thing I'll mention with lice, we we laugh at them now and head lice, etc. But obviously a few years ago, a few tens of years ago, they were the transmission vehicles for terrible diseases that impacted on human society. Typhus, these are bacterial and viral diseases that were spread by lice, fleas, etc. And it's not so much the parasites. These kinds of parasites are destructive themselves. They don't cause as much harm. But it's the bugs that can live within those uh, parasites or ectoparasites that actually are the things that we live in fear of. It might be handy to make a distinction between typhus and typhoid. Typhoid, it means like typhus, but typhus, that's that thing that millions of soldiers fall over and die with when they get lousy clothes. Yes, exactly. And what they were dusting was DDT during the Second World War because that was the only way to... You could get rid of them, and then you got rid of the infection from... Scrub, remember scrub typhus? Well, you don't remember it, you're too young, but things like that. Are they ours, endemic to us? The bugs? The bugs that spread the typhus. No, what tends to happen, um, the bugs will live in another animal species, and these vectors, they can be indiscriminate. They can live on a deer, they can live on a a wild cattle or a mouse, and then we become inadvertent hosts, and they're still feeding off blood or, or off the skin, and they can actually transmit things that come from another animal species. That doesn't really affect that animal species, but when they get into a new host, they can run riot if we haven't evolved mechanisms to deal with some of their pathogenic properties.
I just need to dive back into the pants. Pubic lice, that what, just what we call crabs. Yes, uh, and you've got to think about just pinworms. A lot of people confuse worms yeah. and pinworms. Pinworms is the one that's probably existing still in our first world societies or, or developed countries, if you want to say that. And they just live at our bottoms, and they've got a peculiar way of just making it very itchy. So little kids will often scratch their bottom as if the eggs are a bit sticky. And, of course, the old joke is that then they have the eggs under their fingernails and eat their toast, and they have eggs on toast for breakfast in the morning and get the whole reinfection cycle. So these are common, but they don't really bother us too much. Exactly, exactly. A lot of parasites actually don't hurt us. Oh. And, in fact, some of them we think are, we've, we've evolved such a relationship with them they support us and we support them. And in fact, we're investigating at the moment a couple of worms that actually may even protect us from other parasites. It oh. keeps, the, keeps the host healthy. So there's good ones and bad ones. Okay. Have yeah. I got worms? No, you won't have. Why not? Unless, you, unless you've been um, eating raw things. Um, in fact, cooking or freezing kills most parasites pretty effectively. And most of the food processing we have actually um, protects us from that. And once you stop the cycle, once you separate your waste products from your ingested products, um, usually break the life cycle and we're cleared and the, and the worms are extinct. So the Department of, got, of Conservation got more work on their hands than they yes. actually thought they had with the yes. endangered parasites. Exactly. But also, remember, cattle, sheep, we keep on marching over the same paddocks and they can get heavily infested. It's a big problem with our agricultural industry. Parasites are alive and well for birds, for stock and things like that. Right, and they can transmit to us. Some are shared. Yeah, some are shared, but actually a lot of the wormy ones, not at all. They're highly discriminatory. They wouldn't touch a human at all, and they actually would stay. They love their sheep. They love their cattle or pigs. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about the tapeworm, some myths and facts. They're, they're probably our most famous parasitic worm, aren't they? Well, the most horrific in the sense that if you look through a microscopy, you can see these often flowery kinds of hooked heads, and, and, and they're long, and they're, but actually they do very little harm. They were used in the late 1800s, as a form of dieting for elegant ladies to make sure that they fitted into their corseted dresses and things like that. Don't put it past Gwyneth Paltrow yet. <laughs> exactly. But they tend to be obnoxious. Also, um, hydatids is, is, is like a tapeworm too, and so they can come with some pretty serious side effects. They can look at the genetics of the tapeworms in cattle, sheep, pigs, humans, and they figured out that we probably got our tapeworms from lions and hyenas about 100,000 years ago in the savannah, and then when we started domesticating um, cattle and sheep, we passed our tapeworms on to our livestock. In fact, theirs is a variation of ours. So how does that go? Ah, interesting, because agriculture was a game-changer too, wasn't it? Absolutely. When you start doing agriculture, it creates a wonderful breeding ground for all sorts of parasites, and some of the ones that people are familiar with, even smallpox or the viruses, they're often cattle-derived. When we started bringing animals into close proximity, growing them in high density, we, of course, then started becoming victims of the same thing than the bugs, and we shared each other's bugs. So, as Going back to the worms which are uniquely evolved to live in us, yeah. things like hookworm or schisto, they're pretty sophisticated, and we're pretty sophisticated. The parasite and ourselves have evolved strategies to just cohabitate with each other and try and minimise the damage. Okay, let's get back to the shocking nature of the oh, tapeworm. Yeah. It's too big to be fun. Open your mouth, put a piece of smelly cheese. The tapeworm no, will come uh, up like a rope no, trick. No, 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 no. There are some worms. They're called Ascaris, horrible things, and they go migrating in the night. They're big and they're fat. Just imagine something the size of your pen and pencil you're holding now, both in diameter and uh, length. 
They live in the gut, and they'll come out any orifice, nose, bottom, you name it. And this, if you just look at scars, um, there's some horrific pictures. Is it just mouth and bum, or, or can it transect through tissue to get out? Other places. It, it, not, it does migrate through tissues in various forms. It can go through the lung, but this particular stage where I'm talking about when the female goes looking for friends, um, you can actually have these horrific examples coming out bottom and, and nose and mouth. Oh. As big as a pen crawling out of your nose, yeah. mouth, or yeah, bum. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to think about it too much. Uh, ooh. This worm's crawled out of your bum, and yeah. now it's off on some tour of duty. It's probably accidental it's gone out. It probably didn't mean to, but it just goes wandering up and down looking, looking for friends. We can't interrogate them or give them a questionnaire and they don't answer. They don't really tell us what they're up to. Usually it's males and females looking for each other. Yeah, inside the body, though? Yeah, do the yeah, males yeah, and females yeah. get together inside your body? Yeah, I'm afraid, yes. Not only do we swim in water where fish do business, also things inside us do business as well. What's it called again? Yes, Ascaris, A-S-C-A-R-I-S. Oh dear! Put it up on the on the internet and oh thanks and, and do images. All right. And 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 this is why we've got to get rid of them. And these worms are not kind to us. They can be highly allergic. They can cause problems in people's lungs. And there's a lot of poor people in the world who really still are affected with these things. And that's one of the things we do at the Malagan Institute, trying to find ways how we can make effective vaccines so that we can break the cycle. Because drug treatment doesn't work. These come back, and people are too poor to have proper sanitation. Oh, just regarding the tapeworm, how big can they get? Just so they, they can be in the metres. And, of course, you've got to think about our, our mammalian cousins, you know, whales and things like that. They have horrendously large worms to deal with inside their guts. I hear about when you have a, a dead worm on the beach and they open them up and they can just be just more in the alien kind of character, uh, category in terms of size and, and, and the role in the poor old whale's guts. Oh, my freaking God. Really? Yes, yes. A tape worm. Oh, yeah, I, I can just see it now. Alien head. It's got a head of a hagfish, really, hasn't yes, it? Something yes. like it's disgusting for us. Yeah, maybe there's a hardwired disgust, as not many of them are good for us. It's funny you say that. Uh, the big ones probably aren't that good for us, and the ones that are recent partnerships aren't good for us. But we've got some ancient ones, things like the hookworm. We've lived with a long time. We, I can't tell you how long. Mm. They find a Neanderthal man, which can go back 30, 40, even 100,000 years. They look in the feces in the caves, and they can see the same worms that we have now. Wow. The okay. eggs are the same worms. And so we've been living with these things for a long time, and what we're finding when we do our research studies at the Malagan Institute, we're finding that it can actually help our gut. It can help our lungs yeah. in, in interesting ways. It makes the immune system just a bit calmer. Oh, interesting. Interesting. But not all worms do that. Some worms just are brutal. We think they're brutal. We deal with them. But other worms, actually, it's a bit of a partnership. Mm. If you've got a tapeworm, it's a metre long, it's in your gut. There's plenty of corners and avenues for it to live there down in your small intestine. Exactly. Uh, um, how long is it going to stay there? It... Well, that's the shocking thing that people have to realise. Some of these worms can live for seven, 20, seven to 20 years. These are not like you're just in and out like a virus infection or a cold where basically you have it or a flu is just gone in about three or four days. These are your, your colleagues for quite a long period of your time and development. 
well, more than five years, it's practically a de facto relationship. It can take <laughs> half the house. It's longer than a marriage. Just some facts that just gobsmacking. People have been digging up latrines going back to the 1700s. And when they was a place in upstate New York called Albany, and people will know that, capital of upstate New York, and they found some old toilets and they dug them up and they did the egg count, which reflects the number of worms that people had per gram of feces. A little town on the edge of the Hudson River and they had gobsmackingly, what a scientific term that is, gobsmackingly high densities of worm infestations, hookworm, ascaris, whipworm or trichurus as we call it, and uh, all infested not just with one worm but with up to five worms and in the same uh, faeces sample and very high densities. Europeans having very high densities of worm infection is, is not so long ago as that. Wow. It makes me lean far more and more and more to Stephen Pinker's way of thinking. Things are pretty good today, actually. <laughs> exactly. I think I'm glad you mentioned that because people get kind of excited about how they want to roll around in dirt and things like that. I, I think perhaps controlled, controlled infections could be a potential therapy for the future. We're looking at that. However, there's so many caveats. There's so many individual variation with the way you can respond to these living organisms. It's just not risk. It's not worth the risk. You would have heard about people who are dosing themselves with worms, um, hookworms, and things like that. There are also reports of people overdosing themselves, and these things have, can have serious consequences. Oh dear! The human bot fly. I saw one extracted. It's not fun. It's not up there with your ascaris, I suppose. But if it's going for hurty stuff breaking out of your tissue, mm. and this is one peculiar to humans. Yes, there's a human bot fly, it seems. I, I don't know quite what the adaptations are to live in humans. It's hard to live on a human. We've lost a lot of fur, which usually is a place where these sort of things can hide and not be aware of. And we've got such great devices, our fingers and our nails, to scratch things and really irritate things. Also, an immune system is one of the most evolved things on the planet. But it's usually when we're compromised in some way, a bit depressed or that, that we don't care about life anymore, these things can actually have a go at us. But in general, if you're a normal, healthy, happy human, you're pretty active at picking all the bits and pieces off. But with the bot fly, going back to that, it is disgusting. Um, I've seen them in the sheep, and they can come out the nose, and they're just a horrible big maggot. It's got rather wrinkly skin. But that's pretty much a part of everyday life for a sheep farmer. The sheep farmer not likely to get a big bot fly himself and have it no, hatch out. No, exactly. Don't exist in New Zealand. In parts of Africa, parts of South America, it's the least of their worries and they're actually just trying to get a crust. Now, let's say you've got one and it looks like a boil and then you see something moving underneath. Yeah, scratch it out and that sort of thing. Um, and <laughs> Pick it out with a toothpick. What happens if it breaks in half or something and you've nothing, left a bit nothing. inside? You're well covered. Look, we've lived a long time, and most things we deal with pretty effectively. As I said, we've got the most sophisticated immune system. It will clean up. Things that are hard to deal with are things like tick bites. If you kill a tick and break it off and only the body comes off and the head stays in your skin, that can lead to quite serious infections. Why? But it's got properties in the tick that it suppresses the immune system, so it takes a long way to get going. It's just got different chemical features about it, and it's just hard to deal with, and it seems to just fester. Whereas the bot fly, you can break it in half, you're going to deal with that. Okay. Trust me, I'm an immunologist. Good for you, thank you. <laughs>
All right. Uh, the the myth is it is it a myth? The Amazonian penis worm is the only thing I can think of. A man goes for a leak in the river and it darts up. Of course, this this attracts attention of most men. I don't. Um, it's, it's urethral. I don't know if it's just only the penis. It's not really a worm. It looks like a worm. It's oh. a bit of a fish. Oh. But don't worry. It, it is a. Um, it's, I think it's a significant issue, and I think people live in fear of it. I, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't catch me jumping in and out of the Amazon River, but it does. It starts off as a very little fish that seems to f- find some interest in swimming up or, or crawling up little ducks. What does it do when it's there? I don't know. It gets quite big, actually. Plant a flag? No, no, I think I think it just starts to live there. I, I, it's crazy. If you look, once again, on the website, it, it gets to be quite large. That That is sort of eye-wateringly, if we want to be graphic, it becomes eye-wateringly um, mm, objectionable. Yeah, either living with it or attempting removal. Exactly. I think it has to involve surgery. It's just, and you think that poor people have had to live with this as a, as a hazard of life is just... It's just mind-boggling. So it's not a made-up thing? No, it's not a made-up thing at all. And it would affect women too, wouldn't it, if they were going you'd for a pee? So. You'd think so. I don't think they can tell one urethra from the other. No, I doubt it. Yeah. Now, is it true our eyelashes have got parasites in and we don't care? Yes, yes. There's been some pretty graphic images shown that um, it's sort of a bit like a, a slimmed-down bot fly can crawl in across through the various pores around our eyelashes. It's quite horrific, but it's very real. I've plucked my eyelashes out <laughs> and put them in under a microscope to have a look. I couldn't find any. Are they no, really I too th- small? I think you've got to move fast. They move fast, and you've got to be lucky. Oh, really? Yes, yes. I thought I was bound to find them. No, no, no. Just reflecting on these things, we have a lot of low-level things living on our body, and I think this idea of endemic, we, we are a host to a number of very useful things that live on us and with us. It only gets out of hand when we can become immune-compromised, and... Mm. One or other starts to take over. When you can start to see them, then it's not good for you. And actually, if you can go to a village where they live like we all used to live once, where there's endemic parasites, you'll find most people actually have just a small number of worms of the various species, but there will only be one or two individuals, either the stressed individuals or the ones who don't have a strong immune system, and they'll have the very high levels of worms, and they'll be compromised, affected, or the the effects of retardation or, or just not good development. Because too many worms living off them, depriving them of blood or nutrition. Okay. Okay. Just regarding causing human suffering, can you tell us about river blindness? It just seems awful. Yes, I I think that's a very good one to highlight. Um, There's a lot of people suffering from that, and you can imagine it compromises their life when it's hard enough for these people as it is and to still be exposed to this worm. It actually, it's just, it, it goes off track. It's not that the worm wants to make them blind, or it's a whole range of, a, of this category of worm that just likes to live within us, live within our lymphatics. It's very sophisticated. It's transmitted by the bite of a fly. The fly will feed off our blood, take up more little ones, then bite someone else, and it gets transmitted from person to person, a bit like malaria. What does it do? Well, it's basically it's a worm that's living, and it just can go across your, your eyeball, and of course the immune response to these worms is profound. And it's the immune response, our own immune response, that causes a lot of the problems in trying to get rid of the worm.
It was not so much the worm as eating your eyeballs out. It's just the, our immune system going crazy trying to deal with something it doesn't like. Uh, we've all had something in our eye. It, just, it can ruin an afternoon. You feel completely oppressed by nature. <laughs> I know. How I, I, bad I, would I, this be? Yeah, well, obviously it's frightening because... People need their eyesights for their livelihoods to, to protect themselves. But you couldn't even concentrate on no. anything. No, exactly. With that sort of irritation. Yeah, exactly. Now, and eventually the irritation goes away, eventually the worms are killed, but still you're left blind. What can we do about it? We're trying to build a vaccine um, because one of the funny things is making an effective vaccine that actually deals with the worms at the right stage you need to know it off about very, very um, sophisticated animals which have evolved to live with animals like us over a very long period of time. They use vectors that, like mosquitoes to cheat and not go through the soil. It's very easy just to have good sanitation, but for these ones, it doesn't work because they have a little fly that transmits it. Mm. And you can have all the sanitation you like, but you live in these areas, the fly will transmit it. Now, there will be a lot of people saying, oh, human suffering, you haven't mentioned malaria. Well, it's just so well known, and we're going on the real X. Not that uh, malaria isn't X, but is there anything you would like to mention for the malaria community? Actually, very exciting work coming out of our colleagues, from our colleagues in Australia, where they've learned to make some, I think it's the male mosquito sterile, I forget which one, sterile, and um, really stopping the transmission, which really can seem to, like, like having sanitation, stops the... Um, transmission of this parasite in this track. And, uh, of course, malaria, it's a real threat because it gets young children, developing children. There's a cerebral malaria. Um, but you in effort, global scientific efforts to try and tone down the effects of this disease on our human population. Any other monsters of note? Hookworm. I've got to mention hookworm. We think it can be good for us and at a limited dose, but in general, in the unprotected populations in the developing world, it, keeps, it affects about a billion people, a billion people. That's a significant part of the, of the global population. And what it does, it affects young children. It denies them the iron that they need when they're developing, when their brain is developing. And it creates a lot of problems for these developing countries, that they don't have a population that really, you know, is, could be as good as they should be. Oh, you're on the back foot from the get-go. And I think one of the most compelling things that struck me was it was a video of a class, I think it was Brazil or Venezuela, and the children at the back who were just attention deficit, mucking around, not really dealing with things were the kids with the hookworm. Oh. And, 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 and then you get the whole sense. And, of course, those people fall behind, get trapped into various sort of um, socioeconomic issues, and, and it's just it's really tough for these communities to get out of the situation they're in. And so you could be a descriptor, the hookworm society. Yeah, well, there's a lot of good people trying to help these yeah. people, but it's a tough bug to deal with. Bloody tough, hell. tough. Yeah. So the only other thing to mention, you live in our sort of very privileged life, but there are some pretty dangerous things out there. Go to the tropics in, in Southeast Asia. There's a raw fish kind of meal, which that parasite can cause cancer. It's a very nasty kind of cancer. Yeah. I think people need to be a bit more respectful, both of the communities that deal with this bloody parasites, and they need our help because they're poor communities. But also, it's not a game. Some of these parasites that are around are very much alive, can cause quite a bit of damage, and uh, affect your life. Yeah. All right. It's been fascinating. Uh, it's been gross and very informative. I would mention that one of the parasites that people may come in contact with when they go to barley beaches and stuff is the dog hookworm. There's a human hookworm. There's a dog hookworm. Duck, duck you know, different animal species. What they can get in sewage-contaminated beaches from dog poo is the uh, dog hookworm. 
Now, unfortunately, what happens is the dog hookworm can't really get inside and do its proper job because it likes dogs. And it stays in our skin, and it just actually causes a blistering great immune reaction, which is intensely itchy for at least two or three months and very unpleasant. You're not going to get infected inside, but in a way, you actually have a worse experience than if you actually just had the worm. Ah, because it's in its death throes, struggling to just yeah, do something with exactly. something, and it's got the wrong place. It's got the wrong place, yeah. Ah. Like hydatids. Uh, just reflect on that. We've done a great job. Are you old enough to know the hydatid dosing strip? Yep. And what was that all about? It was all about Vaughan Woodgate in Prima 1, who, <laughs> who had a cyst, and his mother gave him carrots to eat, and he turned orange. That's okay. what it was about. <laughs> well, thank you for that. But what it was about is that um, dogs would be picking up from raw offal. This, it's, it's, it's a tapeworm kind of uh, organism, and we could get from the dog feces transmitted to us these echinococcus and big cysts inside us. They could be life-threatening. They could be on the brain. They just circulate around full of these horrible little fluoria. And through eradicating the intermediate host, the dog host, I mean the final host, the dog, through giving them a drug, uh, we've managed to get rid of that from New Zealand. But there are still places in, in Tibet and in South America we still have idatids. We made a vaccine to that, um, the New Zealanders did, and it's been a great thing. The strength to your arm, and if we are going to somehow calibrate diminishing suffering on the planet, you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a, a richer vein to do work than parasitic infections when you yeah. add up malaria, hookworm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And these unforeseen consequences. Now, that's I just had no inkling that you know you could have a hookworm society they start off but on the back foot and they're never going to achieve their potential yes exactly jeez and folks if you want to disturb yourselves of an evening there are some examples on the weekend variety wallace of what we've been talking about uh, you have been warned that'll do professor graham legro on human parasites from the Maligan Institute for Medical Research. Thank you so much. Thank you. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening and a special hello if you've downloaded the podcast. Uh, just a heads up for tonight and for the podcasters, of course. Uh, John, John Divig is away this week, so if you've been waiting up to hear John, he's not going to be on. Sorry, should have said earlier. Or you could have gone to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and see the, seen the schedule, which doesn't have John Divig in it. It does have a fresh outsider. We're looking at the explorer, Thomas Brunner. Uh, he was exploring in this in the hellish bush of uh, southern New Zealand, it's a hard place to get anywhere, to live, to survive. And yet he managed to do it for 555 days. Frankly, I don't know how. He had a little help, but it's pretty hard. This isn't an easy thing. And it's a stunning story. When he returned, he was, yes, emaciated. Um, but most people thought... You, what are you doing alive? You should be dead. The story of Thomas Brunner and his exploration of southwest New Zealand is uh, like Nelson Go South.
basically, inland. Nobody really knew what was there. Not many Maori, if any, as well, apparently. Okay, that's after 11 o'clock. News, sport and weather now.